Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Earlier this summer, the FT's South Asia correspondent, Ben Parkin, found himself on a road in Afghanistan. It was, in theory, uh, the closest, one of the closest mines to Kabul, but it was still ended up being an 11-hour journey uh, to get there, spread across uh, two days um, over, uh, at times, stunning but very kind of precarious mountain roads, which are supposed to be some of the major highways and trade arteries um, for the country, which shows you know how damaged the infrastructure has been Um, by the past 20 years of war and so on. Ben's destination was a coal mine in the mountains. And after hours and hours in the car, he could tell he was getting close. And then you turn a corner um, to to see this mountain you look up, or sort of, you know, quite a large hill, let's say. Um, and, And you look up and you can just see dozens of people just disappearing into these holes in the face of the mountain and coming out. You know, everyone is completely covered in coal dust. The reason that Ben went to this mine is because he was trying to understand how Afghanistan has changed. President Biden is defending his decision to withdraw all remaining U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Taliban forces entered the heart of the Afghan capital, Kabul, today. The Taliban is in control of Afghanistan. The country's president has fled, and Western countries are scrambling to get people out. Since the United States and NATO withdrew from the country, life in Afghanistan over the last year has shifted dramatically. The Taliban cracked down on human rights, barring women from educational and work opportunities. And the economy itself has cratered. Afghanistan was already the poorest country in Asia. It suffered, after the Taliban took over, a 20%, massive 20% economic contraction. And so these people, who were already living fairly precariously, were just plunged into crisis. Now the Taliban is looking for ways for its economy to rebound. In particular, to its natural resources, including exports like coal. Coal prices globally have risen massively, right? I mean, because of supply chain issues after the pandemic, because of the uptick in global inflation generally, and because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, So Afghanistan or the Taliban who are sat on these big reserves of coal have been real surprise beneficiaries in a way of this because the coal has become a lot more valuable and their neighbors are desperately in need of it. But as the Taliban attempts to build relationships with other countries, it's not clear what this plan would mean for the actual citizens of Afghanistan. Will it benefit them as a group? Or um, do they have real meaningful plans to you know, improve education, improve healthcare? So far, there's very little evidence of that. Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. On today's episode of Behind the Money, 
We explore how Afghanistan and its economy have changed over the last year. Hi, Ben. Um, thanks for coming on to the show today. Thanks very much for, for having me. So the Taliban have been around for decades. They ruled Afghanistan in the 1990s and up until 2001. That's when, following the 9-11 attacks, they were ousted from power in a U.S. invasion for harboring people in al-Qaeda, including Osama bin Laden. But a lot of people living in Afghanistan today, you know, especially young people, may not even remember what it was like to live under this government. So, Ben... How has life, you know, speaking generally, changed for regular Afghans since the Taliban took control last year? Well, the Taliban are an authoritarian uh, government. They're, you know, militants who follow, you know, their interpretation of an extremely strict code that they say is based on Islamic law, um, but is is very idiosyncratic. And since taking power for Afghans, life has changed radically. But one thing that has to be noted is the end of the war has meant um, for many people a big improvement in the security situation. So there's some relief about that. However, um, the Taliban have also imp imposed a pretty brutal and harsh interpretation of their rules on the country. And this has been led to a massive um, loss for many people. The most egregious example is the restrictions on women's rights. Most of all, the ban on education for secondary school or high school aged girls, which has no parallel anywhere else on earth and um, has really been devastating. So it's it's been a, a dramatic shock. So you reported in the past that nearly half of the country's $20 billion GDP was from foreign funding. Can you describe what did that actually look like for Afghanistan's economy during that time, during those 20 years of war? As one person put it to me, it was a war economy. Um, the government and the armed forces and the entire ecosystem was built around foreign aid and around military spending. So, you know, everything from healthcare to education to infrastructure was dependent on foreign aid. And, you know, there was a massive ecosystem of NGOs, contractors, and so on. And there was very little in the way of a private sector. So despite all of that, the billions and billions of dollars that was being spent, Afghanistan was the poorest country in Asia before the Taliban took over and had been getting poorer even then. So then last year, as the U.S. was pulling out, the Taliban so quickly took control of the entire country. What happened in the immediate aftermath of the takeover? Well, so many people depended on the previous government um, and on the foreign forces and foreign NGOs for their livelihoods, whether directly or indirectly. So when they all left, those people all overnight lost whatever income they had. So the various international organizations estimate that around half of Afghanistan's population, 20 million people out of 40 million people, are experiencing acute food insecurity. And now we'll never know how many people have already died of hunger, but um, 
a lot of panelists and, and aid organizations say the only thing that's preventing a mass famine is handouts of humanitarian aid, handouts of rice, of wheat, of um, lentils, of cooking oil. Mm-hmm. And so not only did these foreign support systems that you mentioned leave, but also $9 billion worth of overseas central bank reserves were frozen by the U.S. and its allies. And then also economic sanctions that had been on the Taliban for years suddenly blanketed the entire country's economy when they took power. So how did that impact the country? So the, the outcome of the sanctions is in part that the banking and the financial system had largely ground to a halt in the months after they took over. So banks internationally wanted nothing to do with Afghanistan for fear of falling foul of the sanctions. So this meant if you had savings in a bank, they were often trapped there. This meant if you were trying to do some kind of international deal or transaction, it was prohibitively difficult, if not impossible. So um, it really paralyzed the financial system. So, Ben, you traveled to Afghanistan in December of last year and then again this summer. You said you noticed some stabilization in the economy, but that it's still a very worrying situation overall. What else did you observe about how things had changed in that time frame? One big change over the past six months to a year has been the restriction on women's rights. So now it's much harder for women to work, right, whether that means running businesses or working in offices and so on. And for teenage girls, girls aged 13 and above, they've been kept out of school for a year now. Now, this is devastating on many levels for Afghan society, for the individuals, the girls and their families, but it also has a big economic impact. So it's on the one hand exacerbated the drop in the economy over the past year, but on the other, keeping teenage girls out of school and depriving them of a right to education can have untold long-term economic consequences that really hold back the country's growth and development for years to come. And then when you were at the coal mine outside of Kabul, did you talk to anyone there about how their life has been since the Taliban took over? So I spoke to one miner there who estimated that about half of them are teenage or younger. So it was really quite uh, shocking to see. And this has been happening for a long time. Um, uh, so this isn't a new development. But of course, you know, the severity of the economic crisis has meant that uh, desperate families with no alternatives are more likely to send their children, take them out of school and send them to work in a place like a coal mine than before. We met this uh, 14-year-old boy, Atikula, who, whose job it was to um, drive his uh, donkey up and down the hill face, um, you know, to, to load, it, load uh, bags of coal onto it at the top, take it down, dump it there, and go back up. And, um, you know, he said he'd been working there for years already, since he was eight years old, and you could see you know, how exhausted he was and how weary he was. He said the, the, he earned relatively good money um, and, you know, that without the mine, you know, he, he said he didn't know what else he would be doing. Um, but, you know, you could, you could just see 
um, what a toll it was taking on him. They were fairly sort of, uh, you know, no one I spoke to had really strong things to say about how their situation has changed. They were all fairly weary, basically, uh, you know, about you know these very difficult jobs and dangerous jobs that they did. So, Ben, let's talk about what Taliban officials are trying to do to relieve the economy. While you were in Afghanistan this summer, you interviewed the Taliban commerce minister. Yeah, so I met with and interviewed uh, Nouruddin Azizi, the the Afghanistan's uh, commerce minister under the Taliban, who outlined his vision and the government's vision for the economy. Here's a clip of Ben interviewing Azizi through a translator. What are the the main uh, priorities for you? Uh, like, what are the most important things you want to do during your time in office? Uh, since I'm here, uh, we have uh, our aim and our focus is on two sectors. Of course, regulating the market is one of our duty, and that's important for us, controlling the prices. Uh, but our actual goal is to export, uh, to pr- promote export, mm. to increase export, and mm. uh, to support industries. Mm-hmm. So his focus is on increasing exports, but... The economy is really crippled right now by these economic sanctions and the frozen reserves. So how are they planning to navigate that? So Afghanistan is a very rich country in terms of its natural resources. Um, And it's a big, big, it's sitting on a big, big deposits of mineral wealth. So gold, copper, rare earth minerals, uh, coal, and so on. Uh, a lot of which hasn't been exploited until now because, among other things, the difficulty of doing it uh, in a war zone. So the Taliban are really s- talking up their plans to massively boost mining and massively boost exports of commodities to their neighbors in order to sort of get the economy going again. One thing that's quite surprising is that, looked at from one perspective, the Taliban are pretty ardently free market, right? One of, They see it as their job and part of their strategy to not only cut down on corruption, but also just cut down on regulation and and red tape generally. So uh, as they put it, and as the commerce minister puts it to me, they just want to allow uh, business people to trade, um, to export goods, to import goods. And they see this, you know, allowing these people to do business while, you know, controlling and properly taxing them uh, as their way to run the economy. Mm -hmm. And who are they planning to trade with? There's been a lot of interest from various countries in um, coming to Afghanistan and um, in the wake of the departure of the US and uh, NATO and so on. Countries like China have been visiting Afghanistan. Business people have been going. Uh, officials have been meeting with the Taliban, um, you know, as part of a process of exploring whether they can start to, uh, you know, do deals and and build ties and so on. So there's been this has been very closely watched. Uh, you know, will a country like China step in 
and you know kind of uh, build uh, close ties with the Taliban in, in in the wake of the US's departure that would obviously have significant geopolitical implications uh, so far it's not really amounted to much to be clear so you know the Taliban when you meet them will talk very proudly about all the the the, the Chinese businessmen the Russian businessmen the Turkish businessmen that are coming to Afghanistan to talk about you know setting up mines and so on um, in reality for example with China so far it's amounted to you know uh, pretty small deals like to trade pine nuts for example sell sell pine nuts from afghanistan to china um uh so it's unclear you know who if at all is really comfortable dealing with the taliban at this point how else has the taliban changed the way business is done in the country so the taliban are as one person put it to me a militant moral reform movement who see it as their mission to clean up a corrupt society, a corrupt state, a corrupt economy. So in economic terms, that has meant a real crackdown on actual corruption. I think before, you know, if you were an honest business person trying to take your coal or whatever it is, your almonds from one place in the country to the border with Pakistan or somewhere else, uh, you would have to stop at uh, perhaps dozens of checkpoints along the way and pay bribes to people and so on. Um, so, And this is something that has been backed up by research, by independent uh, uh, researchers and analysts who are no fans of the Taliban, but there, there has been a, a notable decrease in things like bribe taking, in the sort of checkpoints that you know were set up along roads to extort money, including that the Taliban had set up a, a, along roads to extort money. So this has been a noticeable change since they came to power. Obviously, how long it can last is an open question. Mm-hmm. And why have they decided to crack down on things like corruption? Who does that benefit? Well, the Taliban very much would, like any anyone who rules a country, say that what they're doing is for the benefit of everyone. But it's very unclear. So one thing they've done since they came to power is they've massively cracked down on smuggling, which was rampant when it came to trade. The Taliban have used their might and you know a good dose of fear and coercion to bring that down considerably so this has allowed them to really centralize collection of taxes and revenues now what they plan to do with those centralized revenues is is an open question they, they say they have a budget which is about 200 billion afghanis sort of less than half of what it was before the takeover but it's very unclear you know, there are more questions than answers about that budget, about uh, where the money is going, what they, uh, what, where, the, where the money has come from, and what they plan to do with it, and who will ultimately benefit. So, Ben, has there been any movement on these sanctions or reserves in the year since the Taliban took control? So. President uh, Biden earlier this year passed an executive order in which um, he said that half of the foreign reserves held by the US, which is about $7 billion, would be um, kept and given to the victims of 
the families of the victims of 9-11, which is a very controversial um, uh, ruling and still being disputed, but it sparked outrage in Afghanistan um, because, you know, from the point of view, not only of the Taliban, but of uh, ordinary Afghans, this is their money um, and they desperately need it. If you speak to Afghans, uh, whether they're Taliban or non-Taliban, usually their answer will be the same, which is that it's ordinary Afghans, vulnerable, poor Afghans who are being hurt by these sanctions for the reasons we've discussed, uh, not the you know senior Talib leaders who are often pretty independently wealthy and have their own sources of, of income and so on. Um, so it's a big question for the US and, and uh, the international community in general you know, what are, the, what are they hoping to achieve with these sanctions? And how would you describe what the relationship is like now between the West and the Taliban? So, um, you know, engaging with the Taliban has become um, a lot harder, right? There's a deep, deep mistrust between the various sides. Um, so on the part of the Taliban, they see, you know, uh, the US and NATO, the UK, and so on, as um, uh, they see what they're doing as uh, you know, vindict- and a vindictive attempt to punish the Afghan people uh, for you know having uh, defeated them militarily. That's the Taliban's interpretation. Um, from the West's point of view, uh, you know, engaging with the Taliban has become so much harder since they've taken power because of the fact that they've kept girls out of school. Right, which is just a sort of egregious um, violation. It's also become much harder just in the past um, couple of weeks uh, with the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the head of Al-Qaeda, who was found to be living in central Kabul, according to the US, un- with the knowledge and protection of senior Taliban members. Now, part of the peace agreement between the US and the Taliban involved a pledge that the Taliban wouldn't be harboring terrorists such as um, Al-Qaeda. So while the Taliban say they didn't know that this was happening, this has been a major, major setback in terms of building trust. And what do you see as a path forward through all of this? Crucially, the international community has a big role to play, whether they like it or not. There's also a lot of work going on in, uh, with, with you know, the World Bank and others in terms of trying to figure out how to resume some of the development aid that was going to the country, right? The sort of aid that's not, not just um, stopping people from starving to death, but you know, investing, helping to invest in infrastructure and so on in order to... Um, get the economy back on its sort of own two feet, as it were. Um, So that's a big question. But that also depends on how much, if at all, uh, the West and others are willing to deal with the Taliban. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. This episode was edited by John Buckley. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Special thanks to Muir Dickey. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. 
Thanks for listening. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.